The reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of the selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Okay, thank you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Emily asked me, how do, we, how do we end scripture reading? So that's how we end. So when, when Emily or whoever is reading scripture, and they, this is the word of God, we say thanks be to God. Um, welcome, guys. Good seeing you guys. As it was announced by our sister Emily, we have stickers. They fall off, so make sure they're staying with you. You know, we want to do our best to social distance. Um, you know, I think after a while, it's been about a year and a half, and we're following these rules, it could get really frustrating. And, and we could sort of let our guards down. But the reality is numbers have gone up in this city, and some of us live with people that can't afford to, to get COVID. So we really need to be vigilant as we're here. I know, you know, last couple of weeks, people are in the back, and we're hugging each other. Let's try our best to social distance, but fellowship at the same time. So... Uh, thank you guys for doing that, and we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. Our pastor John, last week, launched us into this new series in the letter of Paul. This is a letter that we're going through, as, we, as it was just read. And as Pastor John encouraged, I want to really encourage you guys. It takes, what, 20 minutes for you to read through the whole letter? Every week, try to get through the letter one time. And you know what really helps to kind of fresh things up is using different translations. If you've never... Uh, never sort of tr tried different translations. I know we read ESV and I NIV here, but I love NLT. I love the Message Bible. Uh, try different translations. It may give you new sort of ideas, new insights. But every week, I want to encourage you guys, try to read the letter at least once, which is not a tall task. I mean, that, that is the minimum. If you could read it three times, that'd be awesome. You go through how many episodes of, of, of shows on Netflix? Probably take half of that. Uh, because we're going to be in this book until the end of the year, right? So some of, the, some of our elders are going to actually be preaching as well. Elders have been called to also be uh, part of the teaching. And some of the elders are going to be teaching through this. And we're going to be here until we hit Advent, which is uh, end of, uh, middle of November of this year. So we're going to be here for a while, so you want to get familiar with this book. But the city of Philippi, the letter that Paul is, the, the place the destination of this letter was a very popular retirement destination for former soldiers of Rome. So it was like Florida for Roman soldiers. Uh, it was known, so, so, so many of the Roman soldiers lived there, so it was known for their strong national patri patriotism towards Rome. Right? There was giant sort of attribute, tributes to the Rome and the emperor. So when Paul showed up to this city with the message of a greater king, even better than the, the emperor of Rome, it raised, uh, it just raised a lot of issues, right? There was um, great disruption, 
and caused many in the city to oppose the advancement of the gospel. Uh, those who became a Christian in the city of Philippi faced great persecution and challenges. Some of them were martyred. Some of them uh, were forsaken. Yet the church, what's really interesting is, it's not just in the scripture, but also uh, in different countries today, there's heavy persecution against the church. Uh, often there is this amazing growth in the midst of this persecution. So in Philippi, uh, it, there was amazing growth. And according to this letter, we know that it was actually a rather healthy community. Right? Paul writes some intense letters to some of the churches that deserve it in the New Testament, right? Like Corinthians, they get a couple of letters, maybe a few. But, but really, when we read the book of Philippians, it's one of uh, thankfulness, gratitude, right? Uh, and Paul is just really thankful. You can almost sense the love that Paul has for this church. The occasion of this letter was Paul's response to the gift that the Philippian, Philippian church sent to support Paul's ministry in Rome as he is uh, waiting trial. So Paul writes this letter, what we're going to be going over, this letter to thank them for the gift and to really encourage them to continue on, to do the good things, to agree with each other, to move forward, to celebrate, to rejoice. And perhaps this is why, as Pastor John John shared last week, many refer to this letter as Paul's singing letter. Paul's singing letter. The letter is full of gratitude and encouragement to rejoice. We sang about joy this morning, this afternoon. In fact, the word rejoice or joy is mentioned over 16 times throughout the letter. It's a short letter, but 16 times Paul is talking about challenging and really encouraging people to rejoice. And it's not like Paul doesn't know the challenges and the trials and the fears that the community is facing at the time of the letter. Yet again and again, throughout the letter, he is weaving this message to rejoice, to find your satisfaction, to content, to find your contentment in Christ. So that's what we're going to be really talking about through the next 12, 13 messages in the book of Philippians. So Paul, as, as Pastor John gave you the context last week, Paul is on trial, right, for his work of the gospel. He does not know whether he'll live or be executed. In fact, Paul says, I'm not sure what is better, right? He talks about that. We're going to be there next week. He doesn't know if he's going to live or be able to be set free. He doesn't know his future. He's writing to a group, group of believers who are under great fire with, from within, and, but also from outside of the community. Yet he says, rejoice. And at the end of the letter, he says, I have found the secret. He calls it a secret to really handle everything that come my way. I have found, I have found the secret to be content. So we're going to be really unpacking this. What is this secret that Paul is talking about? And we're going to hit one of those things this morning as we're in chapter 1. So if you find yourself in a season of pain and challenges, this letter is for you. Right? The call to rejoice, despite what you may be facing this morning, it is for you to rejoice. Yet when Paul encourages you and I to rejoice in our suffering, he does not mean we do, we do that by ignoring or downplaying the storm or the pain that we're facing this afternoon. 
Right? We, we were just in a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things that we talked about was the importance of acknowledging, recognizing, expressing your grief, your pain, your hurt, even before God. And how that's the only way you can begin to heal. So Paul is not saying rejoice in a sense you ignore your problems or you downplay your problems. So it's not about pretending to be happy when we are miserable. It's not about convincing ourselves that things aren't as bad or things can be worse. Have you, do you guys have friends that are like that? It's like terrible. And the friend's like, well, it could be worse. You could lose an arm. They're like, yeah, I could lose an arm, but that's terrible too, right? But it's not about, that's not, so when, many of us grew up in the church and we, we, we sing these songs of joy and, and we, are, we are told to rejoice. It's not about downplaying the reality of our situation. It's about bringing your pain, your feelings of doubt, anger, and mistrust onto the one who can truly bear them all. This is why every encouragement we find in, the, in this book, every word of instruction that Paul gives to the church that he loves, they're deeply rooted in the poem of Christ. Right? Chapter 2, that's sort of the highlight the, 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 the have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And Paul, Paul goes on to encourage people, be like Christ. As you treat one another, be like what, what Christ did for you. And this is why that is actually placed in the center of the letter because that, that's the point. Every command, every encouragement, every challenge to rejoice in your trial is not about you. It's not about ignoring your problems. It's coming to Christ and giving it to Christ, to the one who can bear your sorrow, your grief, and your challenges. And you've heard, you've heard you know, many sermons. Many of you guys grew up in, in church and many have been to church. You've heard many sermons or many, many Christians that say joy is an underlying truth. That good, that good or bad circumstances cannot dictate. You've, we've heard that, right? Joy is better than happiness. Happiness is limited. Joy is far bigger. But others argue, the, 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 world, the, the cultural narrative that we live in, joy is just a state of mind. A lot of you non-Christian coworkers, non-Christian boss, or non-Christian sibling, they'll say joy is just a state, state of mind, the outcome of a mind-seeking happiness. So the key is to focus on pleasing thoughts only, pleasant thoughts only. And that's the only way you're going to be able to get to happiness. That's why you, we have these apps and these practices of meditation, gratitude, and, and those, those do help. Yet, yet, yet there's this whole argument about what is, what is joy? Whatever you believe about joy, whether you believe that joy is greater than happiness or joy is simply expression of happiness... You know, you could all think back a time in your life where you, you know the circumstance you found yourself in. You know that you should be happy. You're healthy. You're doing well at work. Relationship's great. Kids are doing well. Yet deep down inside, there was, there was a time where you couldn't help but to be sad. You couldn't help but to think, why am I not happy? Why am I not satisfied? Or you can think of a time when you should have been miserable, like life was terrible, like you had so much going on, so much chaos. 
yet you felt strong sense of peace and comfort. So what that proves, our experience proves, is that joy isn't always a byproduct of happiness. I think we could make that argument. Joy is not always a byproduct of happiness. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. In fact, the Bible tells us joy is what? It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's where we find the word joy. Joy is a gift that we receive only through the relationship that we have with God. Galatians 5.22, that's what Paul says. This joy is really a result or a gift of the Spirit of God. So for many of us, uh, our lives last year and a half under COVID has been tough. I mean, I'm watching these YouTubes of business owners that are just ready to give up, or people that have just shut down their business because they just can't survive. I'm watching these YouTube of people that have lost their jobs, lost, lost their homes. And life has been tough and, 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 and perhaps miserable. And not many people, I, I, I don't think, unless you're into stocks, not many people look back to 2021 and 2022 and say, that was amazing. I think we'll look back and say, that was weird. We actually lived through a pandemic. I think we'll, we'll live to tell our kids, like, hey, we lived through COVID-19. Our, our season under COVID, a year and a half, has, ex, has either exposed or unleashed areas of our lives that needs repairing. I mean, that's for me, maybe for you. We spend a lot of time with our children, spend a lot of time alone, spend a lot of time doing something else. I think it has exposed or unleashed areas of our lives that needs repair or that we need to kind of re, 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 refocus on. Perhaps it's your marriage. Marriage has been tough under COVID. Perhaps it's your relationship with your child or children. Perhaps it's working through a loss of someone or something that's precious to you. For some of you, it's your physical health. For others of you, it's your emotional health. Perhaps spiritual health. I know I've dealt with all three areas of my life, physical, emotional, spiritual health, over a year and a half. For me, that's, that's true for me. Uh, perhaps that describes you. And I'm praying that our time in this letter will infuse a new sense of joy. Amen? That was a long intro. We got 30 more minutes. I'm kidding. So, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, as it was read by our sister Emily. Verse 12, Paul writes as he is under arrest and waiting on trial, not knowing what's going to happen. Sort of he wishes that he would be with Christ. You see, the most surprising thing about the introduction of this letter is not what Paul says, but it is, it is what he fails to mention. Right? Imagine you being in jail and you're writing to your good friends. I mean, what, what would you begin the letter with? You would begin the letter with, hey, I'm doing well, or it's terrible here, the food is bad, I get one hour of TV. I, I, I mean, you would just share about your condition, right? Your physical condition, your emotional health, how you're doing. But notice, Paul doesn't mention any of that stuff. He doesn't say anything about how he is doing personally. What does he do? Instead, he is laser-focused on the fact that more and more people are coming to Christ because he is in chains. If we read this letter without remembering the context, if you just opened up this 
thing called Bible and went to the letter of Philippians and you read it, you, know, you may assume you know, that Paul is doing great. His life is amazing. And he's writing to a group of people that are doing great. But Paul is facing, at the time of the letter, Paul is facing perhaps his greatest challenge. In fact, it's anyone's guess whether Paul will ever be able to walk free. There's a good chance he will be executed. Yet verse 12, he says, My imprisonment, me being in jail, has served to advance the gospel, and in that you should rejoice. Verse 12, there's a subtle wordplay here in the original text. If you read this in Greek, the Greek word for advance is prokepe which is similar to the word that Paul uses, was similar to the, to, to the word for hindrance. I mean, Paul uses prokepe, the advance. It's very similar to the word hindrance, pros, proskope. My, my Greek professor will be embarrassed of me, okay? I'm struggling. Uh, prokepe and proskope, right, sound the same. What, what Paul is trying to do through uh, this, this, this literature, he's saying, what has happened to me, friends, is not prokope, which is hindrance. It is actually prokepe, a greater purpose. That sounded much better when I was prepping. Sounds terrible right now. Okay, I guess I'm agree. What he's saying is my suffering is not a hindrance like you're thinking about, but it is actually an advancement. Right? Friends, the thing that you see as hindrances in your life today, whatever that may be, whatever you think that may be, can be the very tools that God uses to advance His good purpose in your life. Let me repeat. Whatever you may perceive as a major pain in your behind can be the very thing that God uses for His greater purpose. That can be the most annoying coworker. That can be the most unreasonable boss, the most difficult child, the most frustrating season of your marriage or something else. Whatever that is for you, remember, just could it be maybe, just maybe that God may be using that situation or that person or that episode to move forward His great, wonderful purpose in your life. You may hate your job. Many of you guys are teachers, not by choice. You're like, I came to Korea and I had to teach. And you may hate your job. I've talked to many of you teachers and you, many, not everybody, but a lot of you guys don't like teaching because kids are hard. Teaching English is tough. And perhaps all you want to do is quit and move on and get another job. Perhaps through your season in your school, the place you despise, the place you cannot stand. Perhaps God wants to renew and restore and bless those in your workplace. You may want to throw up your hands and, 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 and return your child. I tried. You can't return your child. If you have a baby, that's forever, okay? You can't return your child. Perhaps you're like, I'm done with my child. This child is, is, is rough. Um, yet remember, through your obedience, through your faithfulness, God is raising up, God, perhaps God is raising up a mighty man, a mighty woman for his kingdom. Amen, parents? I mean, I, I do amen to that for my second child. Okay, amen to that. Lord, Lord. Friends, God is always doing something far greater than we can ever see and perceive. 
Let me repeat myself. God is always doing something far greater than we could ever see and perceive. Because He is God and we are not. That's, that makes sense. God is far greater, far bigger than we could ever reach or we could ever even comprehend. And that's precisely Paul's encouragement in this text as he's sharing about the joy that he is filled with. I mean, even this letter, imagine Paul writing this letter. Paul is thinking he's writing to a small group of Christians in a city of Philippi. He had no idea. But when the time of the letter, he probably had no idea that this letter that he penned for a small group of Christians in Philippi would be read by generations after them. Paul, Paul would have had no idea how this short letter will change the lives of billions of people that came after him. So again, as Paul is encouraging his congregation, I want to encourage us, you know, continue to imagine the work that God is doing. Continue to fight to see the bigger things that God is doing. And in fact, the scripture tells us, right, it's very clear throughout the scripture, this is one of the major themes, that each of us, even though we're not the main characters of the story of God, we play a unique part. Like you, each of you play a unique part in this grand story of God. But this is important for us to remember, right? We are not the main characters. I think that's when we get in trouble, when we think our lives are just about us, our lives are just about our success. That's when we get in trouble. Because many of us grew up with a cultural narrative that has repeatedly told us that we are the main character of our own story. I mean, I think about raising my kid, my daughters, and all the things that we do for them, all the ways like I cook for them, and they don't like eggs this way. They don't like yellow. They want white. They don't want it burned. They want it like, I'm like, oh my goodness, raising a bunch of spoiled. I grew up like we never went on vacation. We've never, like, breakfast was just rice and, and, and cook, you know what I'm saying? Rice and soup. My daughters, they're like, I want bagel, but I want it toasty, but I don't want it hard. I want a level five. I, I want that, like, like, literally, like, I'm serving breakfast with three ladies, and they all want eggs differently. That's including Lois. I'm just like, okay, I'm done. Um, but we grew up as main characters of our own story. And the idea, right, our culture has, has told us happiness is found where? Right? If you watch any Pixar movies today, it's no longer about true love. I've said this before. It is about what happiness is found within. Which means no one can tell you, no one can tell me how to live our own lives or who we truly are, right? Did you know now, in California, you can actually, at a certain age, you can go to your parents and say, I'm no longer a boy, I'm a girl. I'm no longer a girl, I'm a boy. And parents cannot do anything about that. Did you know that? The law has passed. I mean, what? Like, my daughter comes back, she, she's going to be a son? I'm like, I don't get to say anything about that? Well, that's, what, that's, that's sort of the narrative that we have grew up in. But, but, but that collides with what it means to be a Christian because the word Christian in, in Greek literally means what? Do you know what Christian means? You're like, no, I don't. No, it's not a common, common knowledge. Christian literally, literally means a follower of Christ. 
a follower, not a leader, not an innovator. We love innovators. We love leaders today, but a follower. Followers that are willing to surrender the very desire or the very sense of right to write out our own story. Right? That's the Christian faith. And, and, and really what, what Jesus is encouraging us to do is to put down our worldviews, put down our cultural narratives, and take on the kingdom narrative that we are important, that we have been invited. And we are characters of this wonderful story, but a far greater story that God is writing out. This is why Paul says, I'm not sure if I'm going to live or I'm going to die or I'm going to be executed. But he ends this section in verse 18. He says, yet I rejoice. I rejoice. Verse 16 to 18, even when there are those who who have taken this opportunity, he's talking about him being in prison, to preach out of envy and rivalry. Paul says, so what? Others have spoken falsely against Paul, right? Other Christians have spoken falsely against Paul. And Paul says, so what if I've been mistreated, misunderstood, misrepresented, or even betrayed by people that I once loved? He says, I rejoice because whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. So friends, through your most difficult and challenging seasons, just remember God is accomplishing His good plans for you. God is accomplishing His good, perfect plans for you. Amen? Here's another wonderful truth, and we're going to wrap up about suffering because we've been talking about trial and storm and suffering. Verse, four, verse 13, Paul says, So that I have become known throughout the whole, uh, guard, throughout the whole imperial guard and, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Okay, you got to circle, is for Christ. When you look at the original sentence structure in verse 13, he is not simply expressing a fact. He's not saying, I'm, I'm in prison. Everyone knows I'm in prison because of Jesus. There is more in the original Greek, right? Paul is highlighting, when you read this text, verse 13 in Greek, he's highlighting an important truth about theology of suffering, which he's going he's gonna to extend in chapter 3. And he says here, there is something that suffering does for us. The prepositional the preposition translated in verse 13 as for Christ, I think it should be read as in Christ. I am in chains because I am a man in Christ. So Paul says his chains are part of manifestation of his discipleship as one who is thereby participating in the suffering of Christ himself. Paul is saying, through my experience in prison, through my suffering, there is something that God is doing. There's something that I'm learning. There's some, in some ways I am growing more like Christ. I'm joining Christ in his suffering. Later in the letter, in chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to be there I don't know who's going to be teaching on that, but, but, but Paul says, participate actually in the suffering of Christ. And the word participation, I mean, this has been 
a, 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 a common message from Peter, from Paul, from James, this idea of participate, join in Christ's suffering. The word that Paul uses is participation in chapter 3. And participa participation is translated as koinonia. Man, my Greek is terrible. I'm sorry. Koinonia. I should have made some space. I can't, you know, one word, okay? What literally means to commune. When we say we're going to fellowship as Christians, that's koinonia, right? To fellowship, to partner. So friends, suffering, pain, trials are often tools that God employs to not only reshape who you are or what you love, but also to draw us, to make us more like Christ, to draw us closer to Christ. So your battle against depression, remember Jesus is with you. Your battle against your addiction and sin, and you can't stand the idea of yourself, Jesus is with you. Your battle against cancer, sickness, Fear, Jesus is with you. Your battle against your own sense of who you are, Jesus is with you. Your battle against anxiety, Jesus is with you. And this is what Paul is saying, that as you participate in the suffering, Jesus is there with you to not only shape what you love, not to only shape who you are, but to reveal more of himself to you. Friends, this is the gospel, and we'll end with this. You see, Jesus, we have a Savior who has not only lived the life that we cannot live and die, died our death for us because of us, but He also knows what it means to struggle. He also knows what it means to be afraid, what it means to be anxious, what it means to cry and cry and cry, and tears of blood pours out because there is no longer tear. He, 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 he knows what it means to grieve. He knows what it means to be misunderstood. He knows what it means to be betrayed by his closest friends. And so he knows, you and I, he knows our tears. He knows our fears. He knows our limitations. He is in the storm with us. He is in the storm with you. And that is the only truth, right? That is the only truth that can free us to rejoice in whatever you may be facing this afternoon. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that we have a Savior who knows us. We have a Savior who has walked in our shoes. We have a Savior who understands, who could relate to the struggles, the temptation, uh, the challenges that we face this afternoon. So we pray, help us, God. Give us eyes to see that you're in the storm with us. Give us faith to believe, even when we don't feel like you're there, even when we feel like you have abandoned us, to know that you're with us. If anyone is sick, if anyone is weary, if anyone is exhausted from their battle, would you encourage them at this time, Spirit? We open ourselves to you. We thank you. We love you. Just in we pray. Amen.
Hey guys, we're going to go into time of communion, and we're going to sing together. And, 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 and the reason we're singing is we're going to prepare our hearts, right? Communion is the most wonderful thing that God has given us. I've talked about communion many times. Communion is the highlight. The sermon is not. Singing is not. The communion is the highlight because this is what Jesus is offering to us this afternoon. Yet Jesus said it very clearly, right? When you come to the table, make sure that you search your heart. Make sure you do it with sober mind, right? So at this time, as we sing this song as a community, you know, take, take the time to sing, take the time to pray. If you need to repent, if you need to be honest with God, let's do that and we'll come back and I'll lead us after this song into time of communion. This is the most wonderful thing about our gathering. That Jesus, our Savior, who knows us, who have gone before us, laid down his life for us. So whatever you're facing this afternoon, whatever challenges and fears you're facing this afternoon, I want to invite you to bring those burdens, those fears unto the one who can truly carry our fears. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, heavy burdened. Take my yoke, which is light and easy. I'll give you rest. Let's take his body together. In the same way, the night he went to the cross, he took a glass of wine as a symbol, as a reminder that as you live this life, you're going to struggle. As you live this life, you're going to face hardships. Hardships externally, but hardships within. Uh, we are sinful people. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we know we struggle. I mean, I know I struggle as a parent, as a husband, struggle as a pastor. That's why we need to come. And that's why Jesus promised us that this is what you need because through my blood poured out for you, I'm going to wash you as clean as snow. And as we take his body, let's remember, Jesus does not see us as who we are, but he sees us, God sees us as his son. Let's take his, his blood together. Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for communion. Thank you for welcoming us to your table. The sweetness of the wine may be a reminder of the sweetness of the love that you have over us, God. Wash us as white as snow. Wash us once again, Lord. Renew, renew us once again. If anyone is feeling guilty, if anyone is filled with guilt here, God, we just pray 
that your blood would wash us. Your blood would remind us that we are white as snow. You see us as your precious child. We thank you. We thank you for this reminder. Just let me pray. Amen.